Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up, with your hosts Lee Coonley, Alana Papianis, and Nathan Radke. Today's topic. Did the CIA deliver at least red crack cocaine in America's inner cities? Is the number going up? Yes, I gotta yep. stop squeaking. Get on okay. my chair. Yeah. Right, so Lee. Yes, hello. Elena. Hi. I have something to show you guys. In my right hand, I have an egg. In my left hand. <laughs> he doesn't, he totally doesn't. Oh, the illusion is shattered. Okay, Lee and Elena, I want you to imagine something. Okay. Imagine in my right hand, I had an egg. Okay. And in my left hand, a frying pan. I remember this commercial. I put the frying pan on the stove, mm-hmm. crack the egg on the frying pan, makes a noise like... You know what that is? That is your brain on drugs. Oh, your yes. brain on drugs. That's right. right. 1980s anti-drug commercial. Yeah, and that wasn't the only one. The, the American government in particular has put out a ton of anti-drug ads. And like we're old enough to remember the 1980s with... To just say no campaign, mm-hmm. where Nancy Reagan would come out and say, oh, drugs, just say no. Just say no to drugs. Which solved that problem. <laughs> we were only that easy, right? Yeah. And, of course, uh, a lot of the sort of hysteria was kind of absurd. There was a commercial that I've seen where uh, a couple kids are sitting in one of their father's studies, and... They're smoking a joint, and then one of them takes out a gun and shoots his friend in the face. Huh. Interestingly, not an anti-gun ad, but an anti-marijuana right. ad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Marijuana, you'll shoot your friend in the face. Wow. But there are some drugs, of course, that are genuinely a uh, public health hazard. And I think part of the problem that the government had with drugs is it lumped it all together in mm-hmm. one idea of mm-hmm. just drugs, which really muddied the, the waters. But in the 1980s, when we were kids, there was a genuine drug problem, and that was uh, the crack issue in inner cities of the United States, because crack was a catastrophe for those cities in a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a health disaster, because crack is a drug which is highly addictive and not conducive to a healthy life. But it also was disastrous for those communities because of the increased policing that started going along when you had the war on drugs. And you had the increased militarization of police. They started getting more violent equipment and Mm -hmm. and armor and tanks. And you would just see houses destroyed and raids. And this was unbelievably damaging for those communities. And also, you started basically losing a generation of men Mm -hmm. into the prison system, which is one of the main reasons why the United States has a greater percentage of their population Mm -hmm. in prison than I think any other country. Yeah, I think so too. So this was a big thing uh, in the 1980s, that we and we remember it. At the same time that they were launching these campaigns on TV while we were trying to watch Scooby-Doo about doing drugs, did you guys play arcade games? A little bit. A little bit. Do you remember at the end, after you were killed by whoever in the game, it would like flash up on the screen like, winners don't do drugs? No. I don't remember that. You don't that. remember that? No. I remember that. Wow. Fairly, like playing Street Fighter or something. Okay. And then you, your guy would get killed, and then it would be like, winners don't do drugs. So it was it permeated all aspects of society. It was showing up in, like, 80s sitcoms. There's always a very special episode. Mm-hmm. Apparently, and I'm not even sure if this is right, but I remember reading that 
uh, sitcoms, they, they got some deal if they actually did an anti-drug episode. Yeah. So it's some, yeah. something from the regulatory bodies that if, if one of yours, then your however much it would cost the air of the show or something would be dramatically reduced. So there was an, actually an incentive to build this into the narratives of the of TV. I remember that Cosby episode where they... One of the, I think the son has a, yeah, Theo yeah. has a joint in his sock totally. drawer. Yeah. It wasn't actually his. He was yeah. just holding yeah, it up yeah. for a friend of his. Yeah. I still remember that. Yeah. And of course, knowing what we know now about Bill Cosby. Oh. Well, yes. That was not the worst drug that was on that set, probably. No, no indeed. Uh, I remember Family Ties. Yeah. Alex Keaton got, yeah. I think, hooked on meth for an episode. Oh, wow. Fresh Prince, I think Carlton. But just for an episode. Just for an episode. Yeah, and yeah Carlton did yeah. Speed, I think. Oh, yeah. right? Speed. For sure, yeah. By accident. Yeah, he yeah, thought yeah, he was yeah. taking he was um, Tylenol. Yeah. <laughs> and I never watched this show, but I heard that Saved by the Bell. Yes. Um, what's his name with the curly hair? He got hooked on something. Probably. Uh, the athletic guy. Yeah, probably Speed. Yeah. And there must yeah, have... it was. It was to study or something. First he started taking something. Okay. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Saved by the Bell. I'm sure there was something yeah. on Degrassi. Yeah, there was oh. for sure Degrassi. Yeah, but every yeah. episode but Degrassi of Degrassi treats everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything was a very special Yeah, everything was, yeah. The old Degrassi. Yeah, that's right. I don't mess, with, no, I don't no, mess no. with the new no, Degrassi. No, gener- no, new generation. Uh, Sidetrack there. But the point is that basically it seemed like the government was trying to bring in all of its resources and go to all these different areas of society to try to prevent mm-hmm. people from doing drugs. But there is a conspiracy theory that the exact opposite was happening secretly. That the CIA, I mean, this is the way this conspiracy theory goes, the CIA was deliberately spreading crack cocaine in the inner cities to destroy those communities. And we should say that these are racialized communities. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. the oh, subtext sure. here is that these this is to destroy black America, yeah. right? right. Um, exactly. Starting with the inner cities. And this, I mean, Nathan, you know the history of conspiracies really well. This would not be the first time that the American government could be accused of having to try try to do something like this. Is that right? Like Tuskegee syphilis experiment? Yeah, or... I mean, we have so many examples from history that are well established where the African American community was targeted in some way by the by some aspect of the U.S. government whether it's the State Department or the FBI, in the mm-hmm. case of uh, COINTELPRO, which is another one of those ones that I really want to do a podcast on. Um, and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was just indefensible and horrifying. Mm-hmm. Like They were using black men to experiment on, to, which resulted in their painful deaths, and in some cases the deaths of their families. There wasn't even any reason at all for them to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Like syphilis at that time was a, a condition that they could cure. Mm-hmm. Right. There was no reason to see what would happen when people died of syphilis. So the government was infecting black men with syphilis. In- well, this is this is sort of, I mean, this could be another podcast on its own. They say that they were finding men who already had syphilis. Okay. Although I have read a lot of documents that point to the idea that after that was closed down, they went to Guatemala and may have then deliberately infected people with syphilis to continue the test. Like, this kind of idea, I mean, it might seem ridiculous to say, oh, the government was trying to destroy our community with, with crack cocaine. Yeah. It's understandable why somebody might think yeah, that. Yeah, it's not right. outside the realm of possibility. No, I mean, it, it wouldn't be, I mean, it would be shocking, but it, it would be in the company of other terrible, shocking mm-hmm. things that have happened. There has been precedent. But the question is, is this true? Is this particular conspiracy true? Did the CIA deliberately spread uh, crack in those communities? And I think... In order to 
understand this conspiracy, we're going to have to go... First of all, we're going to have to go way back in time to basically the 19th century, very briefly. So, Lee, you're our resident time traveler today. All right. So go back. We're going back in our magic time machine in order to talk about the uh, Monroe Doctrine. Now, maybe we should lay it out a little bit where we're going with this, because uh, it gets so complicated so fast. And this is not the same Monroe that we were talking about in the last That's, oh, that's a good <laughs> point. Oh, that yeah, is a very good point. point. This yeah. is not Marilyn Monroe. No. No. Uh, this is President Monroe. I don't have the dates. It's a late 19th century American president. The reason we're talking about this is because in this story, as the conspiracy develops, the conspiracy story develops, uh, we find the United States playing a key role in foreign countries, uh, supporting uh, military groups, arming them, giving them money. And, and, I mean, the first question to ask is, what is the United States doing in these other countries? Why are they there? Well, especially when you think back to the, the, the idea that it was sort of formed on as a country, which is, we will mind our own business. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, mind your business, we'll mind our business, let's not all mess with each other. That's right. Known no. as American isolationism. Yeah. We do our own thing and let the world do what it wants. We're America, we're not going to bother. Mm-hmm. But the Monroe Doctrine um, evolved, as I understand it, as a way to sort of check uh, European imperialism in uh, the Americas. Uh, The Europeans were still interested in gaming, holding colonies, expanding colonies. The Americans, who were by this time an independent country from Britain, did not want to have uh, competitors, wanted to keep a check on what the continental Europeans were up to, and developed this idea that inasmuch as other actors, other political actors might be doing stuff in the Americas. The Americans have something to say about that. Whether it, that's North or South America. So they're basically they're saying, we're not just concerned about what's happening within our borders, but anything in North or South America. That's right. That's now our business. Because it could potentially affect us. And so that this is the logic of the Monroe Doctrine. So we need to make sure that other countries outside of the USA, uh, but in the Americas that they are not a danger to us. And maybe European expansion could represent a danger. So this... And I mean, and Europe was always at war with itself. Sure. So if you had warring nations Mm -hmm. in Europe, when if they start to have more sort of colonial aspirations in North and South America, those wars will Mm -hmm. come over there. I mean, that's what the War of 1812 was, basically. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, So the Monroe Doctrine sets the stage for American interventionism outside of its borders. Okay, so we then fast forward into the Cold War, which we've talked a lot about in this podcast before. And the Cold War now pits the United States, post the Second World War, pits the United States as one major actor against the Soviet Union as another major actor. Sorry, go ahead, Nathan. And the crucial thing, I think, is that they can't fight each other. That's right. Because if they fight each other directly... Everybody dies. Everybody dies. We're all going to die. Which we is known as this beautiful acronym... MAD. MAD for Mutually Assured Destruction. The only acronym that I like more than MAD is they built a computer to try to figure out who would win a nuclear war. Yeah. And I can't remember, unfortunately, what this stands for, but the acronym for that computer was MANIAC, (laughs) which is even better. So we had MANIAC, MAD. It was a glorious time Mm -hmm. for acronyms. But what you did do in the Cold War is you had proxy wars and proxy fights outside of... Uh, So not pitting directly the United States against the Soviet Union, but pitting sympathizers to the American style of government, 
uh, against sympathizers with the Soviet style of government and economy, often within the same country, being mm -hmm. funded by these different powers. Uh, and then either they actually have explicit war, uh, which is a proxy war then between the United States and the Soviet Union. So, okay. So you can this, fight, you can sort of secretly fight by having other people who are on your team, like my capitalists versus your communists in these other countries, and they can fight each other. Mm -hmm. and then With we our can... support. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. So that's, for example, uh, what the Bay of Pigs invasion was uh, supposed to be. So the communists, uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and company, um, take over Cuba. They create a communist uh, state, their socialist state with ties to the Soviet Union. The United States doesn't like it and tries to fund a bunch of people who are against, ex-Cubans, who are expats, who are against that system, and sends them in with uh, guns and plans to try and topple the government. Mm -hmm. This is the classic Cold War mm -hmm. uh, kind of proxy fight. Or Vietnam. Yeah. Or, or Vietnam. the Soviets are in the Korean the War. War. Or Nicaragua, which or Nicaragua. nicely brings us to Nicaragua yeah, in, uh, yeah. <laughs> because that was exactly what was happening uh, in Nicaragua, where... The dictator uh, with the name of Somoza, which I always remember mm -hmm. because it's quite, it sounds delicious. It sounds yeah. delicious. Yeah. He was overthrown by the Sandinistas. The Sandinistas were a far left, maybe Marxist group that uh, was certainly seen as hostile to the United States. Well, just the fact that they were, because they were talking about seizing land from rich people and redistrib mm -hmm. redistributing wealth. And so those two things immediately to the American government, it's like, that's communism. Mm -hmm. That's right. And given the Monroe Doctrine and the fact that we're in the Cold War fighting these proxy wars, this seems like Nicaragua is ripe for a proxy fight to take place between the ideology of communism and uh, capitalism, democracy, and a kind of totalitarianism. So as the Sandinistas are in power there, the playbook goes that you fund the rebel group that's against them. In this case, uh, an outfit known as the Contras, which means, uh, funnily, they are the, explicitly the counter-revolutionaries, uh, who are a particularly bad outfit, which Nathan is going to speak to. Yeah, I have a quote here from a former American Contra director called Edgar Chamorro. And in the New York Times in 1986, he was describing this, this group, which... They were considered the good guys, the freedom fighters, by the American government because they were going up against communists. And throughout the Cold War, the American government always had this idea, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm -hmm. which uh, isn't necessarily true. And in, when it comes to the Contras, uh, this is the direct quote from Chamorro. During my four years as a Contra director, it was premeditated policy to terrorize civilian noncombatants to prevent them from cooperating with the government. Hundreds of civilian murders, mutilations, tortures, and rapes were committed in pursuit of this policy, of which the Contra leaders and their CIA superiors were well aware. Like, this is a group that, while they were pitched as freedom fighters, uh, they were murderers, mm -hmm. they were torturers, they were... They performing. used rape as an explicit policy of torture and fear. Yeah. I mean, this is just one of the things in their arsenal. I mean, these were really... This was a really nasty, bad outfit. But they were anti-communist. They were anti-communist, and so they were being funded by the United States. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by what's known as the Iran-Contra scandal. I guess I need to bring it up here, because uh, this is one part of 
an actual bona fide conspiracy that really did happen where people got in trouble for it in the 1980s, uh, very briefly, the Reagan government, uh, in, or in the hopes of freeing irate, uh, hostages held by Hezbollah, sold uh, weapons to Iran, the proceeds of which they would take to use uh, and send the funds, the proceeds, the funds, they would send that to uh, the Nicaraguans and, and the, fund them. And the reason that this is a problem is because Iran had, had just had a revolution thrown out a an American-friendly dictator in the form of the Shah, and so now Iran was an enemy of the United States, and they were trying to basically have an arms embargo against Iran. So selling them weapons during that arms embargo, they had to be a bit shady about it. And so then they had this shady money. They're like, well, we've got these shady mercenaries. Right. Because, and in fact, the Iran-Contra thing gets even weirder because Israel's in the mix as well. And yeah. Israel is against uh, Iran even at that time. And yet they're actually giving the Iranians Israeli weapons. This really, we're getting into the weeds, so I'm going to skip over that detail yeah. of it. I think it, they were, weren't they using Egyptian arms dealers to get Israeli weapons? It was a That's real... right, which the United yeah. States would refund them. Uh, with United States weapons. So for every Israeli weapon that the Iranians got, the Israeli got uh, an American weapon. Wow. Okay. All of this uh, was actually known, uh, at least within the uh, administration, and in as far as it goes, okay. The problem came with uh, using the funds then to help the Contras. There was a set of amendments known as the Bolin Amendments, of which actually consists of three amendments, which made it illegal to fund the Contras. The American government was not allowed to fund the Contras. So to bypass this rule, they used the shady money, they set up a whole bunch of shady dealings, and they got, they got the funds and the guns and other things to the Contras in Nicaragua. So they could continue their campaigns of murder and torture, right? That's right. Now, that conspiracy actually happened. Yep. There's a second conspiracy now related to this, is that uh, one of the ways that the Americans were funding the Nicaraguan Contras was by filling up planes uh, flown by CIA operatives or people related to the CIA. They would fly planefuls of guns and other things over there. Another question is, when the planes came back, were they empty? Or were the Contras potentially getting yet more resources and funds by filling the planes up again with cocaine and then selling them in the, is selling that cocaine in the United States and using those proceeds to further fund their terror campaign. What a decade. <laughs> what, a, what a decade it was. It was, it was sort of the, the dying years of the old Cold War. And at that point, they were, like, they were trying absolutely anything in order to stick it to the other side and to prevent the spread of the other side's ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, this, at the same time, we've also got the Afghanistan conflict, which is in full force, which is another, doesn't have to do with, well, I guess it does have to do with drugs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, that's, I can't even uh, get started in it. It's going right, to go, uh, go too sideways. We'll come back to that in a different podcast. The two sort of underground funding avenues that they have to fund the Contras to fight the Sandinista government in Nicaragua is, just to recap, they are selling weapons mm-hmm. through this elaborate shell game mm-hmm. to Iran, an archenemy of the United States. And it's possible that the Contras are funding themselves when the 
the planes come in and drop off the weapons, Coke goes back, and they make money off of that. That's right. You do have to wonder, and I remember wondering this in the 80s and 90s when I was being exposed to all these uh, anti-drug ads and campaigns. You gotta wonder where this stuff is coming from, right? Because cocaine is not something you can grow in most parts of the United States, certainly yeah. not in quantities mm -hmm. that you can supply a country the size of the United States with. Where is the heroin, the cocaine, where are these kinds of drugs coming from? And how do you get that much drug, that such huge quantities of drugs into a country without it being noticed by anybody? Yeah, when you have the Drug Enforcement Agency, you have the FBI, you have a lot of agencies spending a lot of money trying to stop this from happening. Exactly. How is this happening so easily? Well, there's two things that we're going to talk about first. I've got some reporting by two Associated Press reporters, Brian Barger and Robert Perry. And in 1985, in the Washington Post, they basically say... Uh, these rebels that we are helping are definitely selling drugs in our cities. And not only that, like, it's it's not just a few people, it's a lot of people. It's mm -hmm. a lot of people who are doing this. The DEA seems incapable, the Drug Enforcement Agency seems incapable of preventing this from happening. Now, we start to get more information, um, and then, do you want to talk about the, a bit of the Kerry Report? Uh, I don't think I can talk about the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. What it's I was, huge. It, it is huge. And, I mean, what I wanted to mention a few minutes ago was just, like, the amount of money that is involved in all this. Like, just the magnitude of these, of the profits that come yeah. from this. Like, can um, I, sorry, Alana, uh, yeah. can I just, uh, can you just let us know about the carry report? So, because there was what? a, this was yeah. a pretty significant... Uh, investigation into yeah. these claims, right? So um, it was published in 1988, and it was John Kerry was the wasn't he the he was the chairman he was of the, it. Yeah, he was the chairman of it. So he was sort of the brainchild who uh, asked for this kind of report to be made. He's he's a he's a senator now. Yes, he, he was a senator, I think, at the time. Yeah, I don't think any of us really hold very many politicians in much esteem. Mm-hmm. But, like, Kerry seems like he, he was kind of decent in some ways. He came back from the Vietnam War yeah. after fighting in, in, like, a very dangerous arena in the Vietnam War and came back and testified in front of Congress about the pointlessness of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was really critical. Yeah. And went on a kind of media campaign after that. Which is probably why he was kind of not treated that well, because he wasn't... Um, he was an anti-war vet, and that's not really a popular thing to be. Yeah, but I, but, but he had earned that. He I had mean, earned he, that. Definitely, but publicly, it. like, it's hard to even be anti-war and not be seen as anti-troop. So, if a, a soldier, a vet himself, is criticizing the war, it's hmm. kind of hard for, I think, a lot of, or at least publicly, for that to be sort of reconciled. I mean, this is kind of a sidebar, but I think an interesting one. Do you think that in the during the Cold War, somehow this transition was made so that to be against war was somehow to be against America? Yeah, for sure that happened. For sure that happened. I mean, because the Vietnam War was such a huge <clears throat> moment for the anti-war movement, too, that coming out of that, they, America, as an experience, they didn't want really that to happen again in a way like it was hard to so the gulf war happens and then there's a strict you know media shutdown you can't have just um journalists 
writing as they want to and, and being embedded with soldiers. And so everything was sort of clamped down on after the Vietnam War, including anti-war sentiment, I'd say. And actually, because we're talking about drugs anyway, and we're on this sort of sidebar, I think another fascinating thing is they knew, like part of the reason they had the war on drugs, and we know this because there are like recordings of Nixon saying this overtly, is that he knew that his enemies, who he included um, hippies mm -hmm. and African-Americans, mm -hmm. he knew that there was pot use in those communities. And so by cracking down on those communities yeah. for pot use was a way of him taking those, what he considered his enemies to be down. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Right. So then that gets us back after, I think, a useful sidebar. Mm -hmm. That gets us back to this Kerry report, which was just basically him chairing this committee to find out, are we contributing to our own drug problem? And so then what, what sort of comes out of this report? So let's take a quick break and then dive into this carry report. All right. Okay. So, uh, let's see. So the report from the subcommittee. So I'm going to sum up some of the conclusions that came out of this report. So here's one significant uh, quotation. So it is clear that individuals who have provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking. The supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. In each case, one or another agency of the U.S. government had information regarding the involvement, either while it was occurring or immediately thereafter. That, yeah. That's pretty damning. That is damning. Yeah. I and mean, it's even more damning when you consider that this is the American government investigating itself. Yeah. I mean, like this in, is, sorry. Oh, uh, no. Well, I think we're saying the same thing, which is just, this is... This is astounding. This is uh, John Kerry and uh, Senator Christopher Dodd uh, writing a report, what, in 1988, mm -hmm. you said this is published, that says, if not the CIA was directly involved, at least government agencies know that cocaine is being smuggled into the United States and what, they're complicit? They're looking the mm -hmm. other way, right? Well, and it even um, there's a few other important points there, too. So, at the, at the time that the Justice Department and CIA were both claiming that there were no links between the Contras and uh, cocaine, the FBI already had, quote, significant information regarding the involvement of narcotics traffickers in Contra operations. So um, the agencies themselves were, weren't on the same page and were not sort of disclosing the same amount of information. That might be surprising to some people to hear that the FBI and the CIA seem to be working at odds yeah. in this. But is that unusual for those two agencies? I th well, up until 9-11, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Really? Yeah. That's, when, that's, that's when it sort of blew the top off that and everyone was like, what do you mean you weren't talking to each other this whole time? What do you mean you have all this information the other organization doesn't? I think that was the, the sort of the moment. Yeah, because it was so clear. It's like, oh, man, if we talked to each other a bit more in yeah. this, if we weren't competing with each other... I mean, the, the point of the FBI is to deal with crime within the borders of the United States. And the idea of the CIA is they're not supposed to have any kind of influence inside the United States. They're supposed to just sort of consolidate intelligence mm -hmm. from other countries. But they seem like they're very competitive with each other. And also, I think in this case, they seem to be at 
at odds. Like, what would the FBI's interest be in drugs coming into the country? They would want to be finding the dealers, arresting them, mm -hmm. and stopping it. But the CIA's interest is to win this war in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And so even though they're both American agencies, they're, they're basically just against each other in, at this point. I, I think that's an incredibly important point to keep in mind that because often I'll hear this, a lot of people will say things like, oh, the government, yeah. as though yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. monolithic yeah. institution that functions coherently, everybody agrees, they've yeah. got one agenda, and of course, it's, it's, it's made up of all these different institutions that Nathan, as you rightly say, have, have often totally different mandates, uh, goals, ways of achieving it, and I would go even further, I would say even within those institutions, I mean, you're going to have uh, FBI people who are disagreeing with their bosses, who maybe will leak information. Mm -hmm. It's not as though the FBI even operates as just one coherent unit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important when we're thinking about how conspiracies can be maintained as a, like, if it's a bona fide legitimate conspiracy, given a kind of antagonistic relationship where people are incentivized to sometimes find out this stuff. Uh, I think that's a good point, actually, yeah. because I, we we can get so lazy when we're trying to do shortcuts and we can say things like, oh, the government did this. And exactly as Lee says, it's like, no, the government's kind of a mess. Yeah, <laughs> with a lot of different people, yeah, a lot of different interests. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's what the one of the things that the Kerry Report sort of shows. It's like, man, there was like a lot of different... Uh, agencies with a lot of different motivations who... Uh, I'll give you an example of how this occurred. Um, so you could have the, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Their job is to stop drugs coming in. The CIA's job is to destroy communism. And sometimes those two things will sort of clash with each other. So occasionally you will get, for example, uh, there was a Nicaraguan cocaine dealer arrested by the FBI in the United States for dealing drugs, and uh, $36,000 of drug money was seized from him. And so you would think, all right, nice job, FBI, you've got a drug dealer, you can go home happy. But that drug dealer was then released, according to court records, the money was returned to that drug dealer, and the reason is two Contra leaders sent letters to uh, the court saying, no, that's, you know, that's... He's one of us, We're, we're right? fighting communism with this drug money. Which is what you guys want us to do. Right. Yeah, but meanwhile, those drugs are flooding into the inner cities, yeah. and the low-level dealers are getting busted for right. it. Right. And the communities are getting destroyed, and, like, the, the health of people is, is, is put into danger. Uh, so it's like they were basically, it's like, what you call it, collateral damage, the inner cities of the United States? Oh, that's a good it? term, yeah. It's like they weren't, like, I don't know if they were trying to yeah, destroy them, but, but... Yeah, they were... They were, they were a casualty of it, nonetheless, yeah. And a casualty which the CIA apparently felt was acceptable. It's an amazing document. Well, because both, like, within the U.S., like, their the, the Justice Department still couldn't do anything about this. You know, they send them off and with his money. But same thing for, like, the U.S. I'm just trying to figure out who, which organization is trying to extradite some of these high-level drug traffickers abroad as well. And, um or like equally sort of impotent to do anything like um, none of the leading cartel members have ever been directly implicated in any of these murders that they've committed 
As one U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration official bemoaned, there isn't a cop that will arrest them, there isn't a judge that will try them, there isn't a jail that will hold them. So even, you can't even get their Justice Department, their local Justice Department somewhere um, else to hold someone and then even get them to the U.S. to try them for anything as well. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, it's even impossible. And I guess also, I mean, thinking about the logic of what the CIA is trying to do, how, how are you going to get buy-in from your local goons in other countries if they can see that, well, you know, as soon yeah. as the job is done, you get extradited and get the death penalty in the United States? There is one guy that they meant, that the Care Report mentions who's in jail in the States, and they think he was just, like, thrown into the pit. Like, he was on drugs himself. He was a bit of a liability. Oh, I see. And so they were like, sure, take him. And they take sort this of, guy. Totally, right. take this guy. And mm. so he ended up being like extradited and taken, but they were seen as like, he was just a liability. And so the other drug lords were kind of happy to be rid of him. Well, and, and Noriega, who's part of this story, mm -hmm. he's in jail still today, isn't yeah. he? Um, and and got... he was the CIA's guy for a while. Right, That that's it. So I guess some people maybe become fall people. Yeah. Well, I and, and I mean, that, that idea that the CIA backs you and then they don't need you anymore and then they cut you off, that has happened again and again and again hmm. with Noriega or, say, in Afghanistan. Right. Where basically the Mujahideen was being backed by the CIA. Yeah, of and course. Yeah. Once, once the Cold War was over and they didn't need them, they pulled out and left the country in absolute ruins. Right. Now, Nathan, I, I wonder if we could get... Move the story now from the, the, the cocaine is, is, is landing somehow in planes, mm -hmm. maybe in the southern parts of the United States, Southern California, places like that. So we've, we theoretically potentially have cocaine, uh, plane loads of cocaine. Mm -hmm. How does this get out? How, how do you move it? How do yeah. exactly? Like, how does this now become an epidemic in the streets of inner cities of, of the United States? I would say. There's a character who kind of enters into this now who's almost a legendary drug dealer. And that is Freeway Rick Ross. Freeway Rick Ross. Freeway Rick Ross. And he is, like, basically in L.A., it was just a legend. He was, like, the dope dealer. He was, like, the, the guy who sort of contributed more than anybody to the spread of this unbelievably addictive substance. Like, mm -hmm. cocaine is not a great idea. And you, you can certainly become dependent on it. But crack is just lethally addictive and basically what what they do is they, they take the pure foam of cocaine and then they mix it with just a bunch of poison basically and change it so that it's a smokable form rather than a snortable form and it hits you almost immediately and your brain loves it hmm. your brain will love crack your life won't love it clearly because mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a great uh, life advancer but your brain gets flooded with dopamine and it's such an intense hit, and it's such a quick hit, and it's such a cheap hit because there's so little cocaine involved with it because mostly it's just terrible chemicals. Mm. And so you can take some amount of cocaine and make an absolute ton of crack and sell it. It was going for like $5 a hit. And this is what uh, Freeway Ricky Ross was doing. He was taking, somehow he was getting his hands on vast amounts of cocaine. Yep. He was uh, then turning that into crack in order to increase his profit margin. Yep. Now, was he also, I don't and, know. And then that I money. Was he distributing it? Uh, he was distributing, I mean, he had a, a, like a large framework of lower was, level dealers. Yeah, okay. And often those guys would get arrested. Yeah. I also heard, and I'm not sure if I'm right about this, but that he is the origin of the crack house. 
that he basically does a McDonald's-style franchise where the right. crack house is the, both the place where you can go get it yeah, and yeah. you can uh, use it. Right. And so he has these, you know, uh, basically abandoned places where he has his lower-level dealers. Not sure, Nathan, if you would read the same thing. And uh, then they're the ones who are then distributing the crack to the actual users. And so then look at the consequences of this. Uh, and, of course, the money that Rick Ross gives to the guys in the planes goes off back to the Contras. So look at what's happened now. We have these communities which are being devastated by this terrible new drug. We have communities where they're losing a generation of men arrested for dealing or for possession. Uh, not only that, but you start to see uh, the gangs who are getting an influx of cash from these new drugs. They are spending it on like uh, more powerful weaponry. You start to see a lot of the horrifying gang wars and the turf wars that happen in places like L.A. throughout the 80s. I mean, all of this is like a, it's a horrifying cost. And, but apparently a cost that the CIA was sort of willing to accept as blowback. Mm -hmm. There's one more thing I wanted to talk about, and it's kind of an odd little ending to this. There was a journalist called Gary Webb, and he was writing for the... Uh, actually have it. The newspaper, the, the Mercury News. Yeah, the San Jose Mercury News, which is not the only newspaper he wrote for. No, but... it was, and he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. I mean, a serious journalist. And he has a, uh, he has a series about, and it comes out in 1996, he has a series about the these events. That's and right. Sort of, and retelling, asking the question, how did crack get so bad? How did the gang problem get so bad? How did... The prison problem gets so bad. And what Webb argues is, well, this is the result of uh, this war that we had in Nicaragua. This is the collateral damage that's coming back home that isn't making the news because it's African-American mm -hmm. communities and the, the news doesn't seem to care that much about those communities. Now, what's interesting about Webb is that he's not saying anything particularly controversial. I mean, he's just basically repeating the stuff that was in the Kerry Report which is an official government paper. He's repeating stuff that was in the AP uh, reports in the 80s from Berger and Berger and Perry. So he isn't saying anything too inflammatory. He's, he's being fairly careful with his, with his connections that he's, that he's making between these events. Part of the problem is the, the picture that runs alongside his article is a picture of a crack pipe superimposed over the CIA logo. And so that's kind of an inflammatory mm -hmm. logo. And it doesn't really speak to the complexities that then he addresses mm -hmm. in his mm -hmm. paper. And then unfortunately, like all of the mainstream media turns against Webb. Hmm. The New York Times, Washington Post, the LA Times, they all basically take out smear pieces on Webb and they attack his reporting. Even his mm -hmm. own newspaper, the, the Mercury News, eventually says, you know what? That didn't meet our standards. But after reading it, like, there's nothing in there that wasn't in the, the, the carrier report. And I mean, that, on a total side note, yet it's connected. So I just read an article the other day about, um, okay, so we know with this Me Too campaign right now and all these high-profile white men that are being, um, you know, found to have been involved in sexual assault. Uh, I just read an article the other day about, you know, why does R. Kelly still have yeah. a career? Good question. Knowing that, like, it's very well documented at this point that he preys on young black women mm -hmm. and in a similar argument saying it's because America 
or North America doesn't care enough about this community mm-hmm. that it's not that people are still wearing his shirts like a Sam Smith or something the other day after his concert was wearing like an R. Kelly shirt and then like there's just not the same level of outrage. yeah like a, over these young African American right, right, right. girls. Uh, no, I mean, that's a, that's a sad example and a good example. Another one would be um, the Gulf War. Uh, do you remember Jessica Lynch? Yeah. She was a female soldier who was taken prisoner, and yeah. it was this big deal. It's like, oh, our first female soldier has been taken prisoner in this war against the Iraqis, and her, her face was everywhere, and they organized this operation to take her back, which was actually a bit sketchy, and we could probably do a whole episode on that. Yeah. But at the exact same time that Jessica Lynch blonde white woman gets taken prisoner another soldier shoshana johnson yeah. also female gets taken prisoner mm-hmm. the exact same operation and nothing just right, radio right. silence yeah. from all of the media yeah and in lynch's defense when she got back one of the things she said was why did nobody mention the fact that shoshana johnson was also taken mm-hmm. prisoner right and because their stories were so similar you have to say it's like well the media didn't seem that concerned mm-hmm. about an african-american woman mm-hmm very depressing. This is very depressing. It's about to get more depressing because Gary <laughs> Webb, he loses his job because his his like his credentials are criticized and his and his work is attacked. I, I think I, ju- I just want to mention Nathan that uh, it, uh, Gary Stephen Webb's piece is called the Dark Alliance. Yeah, and it's um, still available online, and I encourage it, people to read it. That's right. It's very interesting. Oh, sorry. If I could just throw one thing out, since oh, we're ahead. talking about him. Even though you were saying that uh, nothing he says is uh, not also found in the Kerry report, I agree with most of what you're saying, except that the links that he's been criticized for, as I understand it, was precisely the stuff around the drugs then being moved to the suppliers and the dealers. Mm-hmm. So, And I think there's a report in 2000 that was commissioned as a result in part of uh, Webb's revelations just again to look into what is the connection between the CIA and the drug smugglers and the Contras. And they, in that report, uh, found no substantial connection that the CIA had anything to do with actually getting the drugs into the hands of uh, the suppliers and like people like mm-hmm. uh, Freeway Ricky Ross. So I guess there, it, just to be you know very uh, conservative about our interpretation there might be some things in the article that are a bit um inflammatory or a little bit inflated well i mean he never says that the cia is deliberately spreading the drug okay like he never he never says that in any of his uh in any of the mercury news reporting but i think the fact that the logo on -hmm. the front of it i mean that was but i mean he wasn't in control of that logo okay but that was just to try to get more eyes on the page uh, eventually, what happens to Webb, and this isn't going to get any less sad, yeah. is uh, he takes his own life in 2004. Now, people were actually sort of suspicious about the suicide, and I was suspicious about the suicide, because he shot himself in the head twice. Yeah, that is And Elena just shot me a very suspicious <laughs> look when I said that. My brow was very furrowed. That was a furrowed brow. Yeah. And so you hear that, and you're like, that does not sound like a suicide. Right. But apparently his friends, his family had received notes. He had been very depressed. This was like long after this stuff had already come out, so there wasn't really much point in silencing him. So, well, when I first heard that, I was as suspicious as Elena was. It seems like, yeah, maybe it was a suicide in this case. 
Um, the last thing that I would like to say... Oh, instead of saying that, I'm going to say something else. So where do we stand then? Is the conspiracy theory that the CIA deliberately spread crack cocaine in inner cities to destroy those communities, are we going to say that that is a true conspiracy? Or are we going to say that there's aspects of it that are true? What would we say? I'd say aspects of it are very feasible. The, the, the fact that it was maybe uh, allowed might not have been directly um, or like as directly facilitated as some conspiracy theories might suggest, but it definitely seems like there was incentive to allow things to happen, to allow drugs to come in and money to flow out and communities to be destroyed. Yeah, I think I agree with Elena. I, 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 I like your earlier notion of collateral damage, Nathan. I think that uh, while I don't think that the CIA was actively trying to destroy inner cities and black communities, I think that um, it was acceptable collateral damage mm -hmm. uh, from their perspective. Uh, it was acceptable collateral damage given their larger objectives, which was to fight communism and you know create a quote-unquote free world. So I think, I mean, as the Kerry report said, I think agencies knew that the drugs were coming in. I think they turned a blind eye. I think when it came to operatives uh, in uh, um, uh, Nicaragua or Colombia or other places, those people were not uh, part of the drug, um, what's the word, uh, roundup, you know, this, mm -hmm. this sort of attempt to, to uh, criminalize and imprison drug dealers and drug users. The elites were kept free of that. Yep. So I, it's a partial conspiracy is, yeah. is how I would frame it. And think about how neatly it would have fit the sort of Republican, you know, moral stance that they might be taking at the time, too. And this war on drugs in contrast to these communities, these African-American communities falling apart. And like it's an easy thing to vilify and sort of um, speak to in terms of even just rhetoric. Yeah, well, for sure, because then you can point to those communities yeah. and be like, look, this is why we need law and order exactly. candidates. Look at these communities, yeah. which are destroyed through no fault of the government at all, yeah. but clearly entirely because of their own work. Well, and, and I, <laughs> I might be interjecting yet another conspiracy here, but, but part of my read on this as well, which follows exactly from what you were saying, Elena, is that these communities were actually falling apart before the drugs got there. And that's a part of this story mm -hmm. that we didn't get to touch on. Um, I'm... I'm Following an argument here uh, from um, political theorist uh, David Harvey, who looks at the history of neoliberal policies in the United States and says that a lot of these communities, especially these uh, communities where uh, a lot of black men, say in New York, were actually doing really well in the 70s. They were kind of a model of, um, you know, integrated, middle-class, uh, you know, professional jobs, good families. They were not falling apart. Then they have these economic policies that start offshoring the work um, and lead to a kind of col economic collapse of these neighborhoods, at which time a rather hard drug shows up. Which is very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Which is inexpensive. And again, like, I, I, I want to... You know, I, I think it's obvious that there are people who will struggle with um, addiction problems no matter where they come from in their in socioeconomic terms. But I think that 
a lot more people are going to be a lot more susceptible to drug problems when their lives are falling apart. Mm -hmm. right? And they're when, going to be a lot more susceptible to distributing and selling drugs when their lives are falling apart, and there aren't that many avenues to mm -hmm. pursue to, to and, make a decent living. And to, to come full circle again to uh, Elena's point, now you don't have to take responsibility for any of the economic sabotage that has taken place in these communities. Mm -hmm. It's the drug's fault. Right. And the drugs have got nothing to do with us, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, us being the American government or mainstream society. I think it's understandable. Like I, I agree with both of you. I don't think that they were deliberately trying to spread crack cocaine. I think they allowed the spread of crack cocaine. But I'm very sympathetic to the, to the conspiracy theory that the government was actively working against these communities. Uh, Jesse Jackson, I've got a quote from him. Mm -hmm speaking on this uh, topic, there is the weight of a lot of experiences with our government operating in adverse or conspiratorial ways against black people. The context is what's driving the story. Hmm. So I can definitely understand why people would have believed this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a total, total side note question. Sure. Um, where's all the fentanyl coming from that's causing all epidemic in the States now? Is that coming from Mexico or the Well, Americas so somewhere? this, I mean, I... I yeah, because that's a catastrophe right yeah. now. To be fair, I don't know the strict answer to yeah. this, but I think it's different from cocaine and um, heroin in the sense that this is a synthetic, synthetic. drug yeah, and yeah, so yeah. can be made in a lab. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like meth, for example, yeah. you don't need to distribute, you don't need to go to Mexico to yeah. get meth. You can you yeah. create yeah. it synthetically in yeah. a, a lab somewhere in America. I think this is what's going on. Yeah. So I think the fentanyl crisis is in large part it's actually the pharmaceuticals that are producing it they're probably producing it in whatever factories you know in, in canada and the united states mm -hmm. and then the black market distribution of stuff that's legally produced right. you know so this will come through uh pharmacists hospitals people who've been prescribed this stuff but aren't actually using it but yeah, yeah, are yeah. you know and yeah. so this stuff gets out into the community I think that way. Yeah, actually, you're right because I listen. I did listen to a podcast recently, recently <clears throat> where they were they didn't have very good, I guess, state to state rules before, so people would go into different states, get prescriptions for it, come back and sell the stuff for cheap, and yeah. make a bunch of money. Yeah. I've got a solution to this new crisis, though. Just say no. Just say no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we should yeah. imprison everybody involved up and down, That's right? That's right, and show people what frying eggs look like. Mm -hmm. <laughs>